Here in this political season, uh, we certainly do hear, um, even at this relatively early stage of the process, uh, candidates uh, who make promises to us, no few, uh, of that which they are surely going to do, uh, promises as to what they're going to do, um, boasts as to their record in the past, and uh, even in some cases claims, disparaging claims about their opponents. And when you track all of that, oftentimes, and there are websites, in fact, devoted to this very thing, um, it is oftentimes the case that the truthfulness of what they are um, promising and boasting and claiming is at best partially true, if not in some cases just completely outright false. Which then unfortunately has a way of working its way into our thoughts and minds about the whole process and making us incredibly cynical about every, any and everything that just comes out of their mouths. And I think already, just in this primary season, we're all impacted and affected uh, by that to, to some degree. But the, the, here's the sad reality. The sad reality is, is that what's going on in the political sphere is actually just a reflection of what goes on in our own personal lives. Because whether we're talking about home or school or work, we are all either victims or perpetrators of bending the truth, of stretching the facts, inflating the claims. We all, this is just an, an infection, a plague, run rampant in the human heart. Wherever we turn, wherever we look, victims or perpetrators. Uh, we have just a fundamental struggle uh, with telling the truth and being true to our word. And no one's immune. No one. Which then takes us again back to the good words, truly good words of Jesus. So if you have your Bible with you now, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We are pressing on in our series in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which right now, and yet for some time to come, will keep us in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've been... Uh, Got back into that series just last week. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to be reading verses 33 through 37. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Hear now the word of God. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, would you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we surely need to hear this. Uh, you wouldn't have uh, spoken it. You wouldn't have said it if we didn't need to hear it. And uh, however puzzling this may initially strike us when we first hear it, uh, surely we, we do. And uh, we ask that you would give us understanding uh, of mind, clarity of, of thought, but also a, 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 an openness, an honesty, a, a willingness to, to deeply hear and to, to let ourselves be examined 
under the good care of the one who is speaking here, who is really behind these words, you, you yourself. And so we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, uh, let me just dive in here. Uh, Surely, you must understand, I hope you you do, I'm just going to point it out if it's not terribly obvious, um, that Jesus comes into, he's speaking, he's he's come into an, an historical context. It's not like he's just come out of nowhere. And because of that, because of the historical context in which he is speaking, his first hearers and Matthew's first readers are surely asking this question, how does Jesus' teaching, striking as it is, relate to the Old Testament? Where does he stand? Where does this enigmatic rabbi from Galilee, where does he stand when it comes to that which we have heard and held true to for for so long. Well, well, lest we be left to wonder, Jesus tells us very plainly uh, there in verse 17 of chapter 5. You just have to go back a few verses. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have not come to abolish or set aside or do away with the Old Testament. Rather, I've come to fulfill it, to bring it to its completion. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? It means that the Old Testament is ultimately all about him, that it is point, Genesis all the way forward. It is pointing to him. It is completed in him. He holds it together. Ultimately, you could even say that the Old Testament, what is in, its intended message from God himself, doesn't make any sense outside of Jesus as its fulfillment. Um, put it this way. all that We talked about this last week, alluded to at least briefly last week. All the prophecies are ultimately met in him, in his life and ministry. Uh, all of the ceremonies and all the sacrifices and all the, the, the rites of, for those centuries in the tabernacle and, and the temple, and all that that represented was pointing to preparing the way for, for him. All of the key persons and events in Old Testament history the, the, the figure behind all of that and who that is ultimately all about and pointing and anticipating is Jesus. And in particular for what we're looking at here this, this morning um, and this section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, all of the commands, God's commands for all those centuries was recorded there in the Old Testament, find their true meaning, their intent and fulfillment in what Jesus is teaching. So you see, Jesus... With all that in mind, when it mean, the, on the freight train of what it means for Jesus to have come to fulfill the law, he is not just another rabbi. He is not just another sage. He is not just another teacher. He is not just another guru from whom, among whom, he just stands as one of many that we can choose from. He stands above them all. He has come to fulfill the law. And we need to heed what it is that he has to say. Now, in the course of this section in the Sermon on the Mount, he is setting up some contrasts, some antitheses. And there's a series of six of them. This is the fourth of those six. And, and, and the contrast, by the way, is not, please be clear, it is not that he is saying, well, this is what the Old Testament says and this is what I say. No, 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 that's not the contrast. The contrast is, is this is what you were told the Old Testament said and what it meant. Now, I'm telling you what it's really about. That's the contrast. That's the antithesis. And uh, 
Just like we saw last week, that, that, that text there in verses 31 through 32 really wasn't preeminently, predominantly about grounds for divorce. It was really about the call to fidelity in marriage. So too in this case, it's not really about oath-taking, but about truth-telling and word-keeping. That's really fundamentally what these this text, these verses are about. He's come to fulfill the law. So let me say again, we need to heed what he has to say, including especially with our speech. And I'm going to go with a very familiar outline, if you've been paying attention here at all. In these, this series of antitheses, these six, I'm pretty much stuck on this. We're going to look at first, to, to get at this, what he's, what he's speaking of, we're going to first look at the command, what is Jesus hearkening back to. Second, then the correction that he gives to things regarding and what the understanding of that command was. And then thirdly, we're going to look at some cautions that we need to weigh and be aware of in our own lives. So first, the command. What is he speaking of? Verse 33 again. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. It's, it's worth noting, okay, we, again, we need to, to make the, a distinction between what was said originally and how it was read in Jesus' time, how his readers were, had come to or in this case his hearers had come to understand how that had been filtered down to them. This is not actually an exact quote from the Old Testament. You're not going to find that. What, what Jesus is saying there, he's giving a summary of several quotes, of several texts, of several passages from the Old Testament. So it's not just one thing he's quoting, but he's rather he's summarizing here. And all of those pulled together are basically saying this. They are prohibiting are taking irreverent oaths or making them and then breaking them. That's what those, those passages were about. Okay, so that's what was said. Now, how is it read? How was it filtered? How was it understood? Uh, it's worth understanding the perspective of the Pharisees on this issue. How did they understand it and therein how did they teach it? And the Pharisees, in case you don't know, were something, I guess you could say, kind of like a political party. There in Judea at the time, they were religious authorities and very influential, though even though they were actually the minority party at the time. Their perspective on this issue was they did not see this command as speaking to perjury. That is to say, by the time you get to the first century, the Pharisees, what their approach on this is, it's not about a dishonest pledge of our word. Rather, instead of seeing it as perjury, they saw it as being about profanity. Now, not the way you think of that word, but rather in, in the strictest definition of a profane use of God's name, of a dishonorable way of using God's name. That's what, in the, you know, strictly speaking, the profanity actually means. So it's not about perjury in their minds, it's about profanity. And so that they created this system of gradation of vows, of first-tier vows, second-tier vows, third-tier vows, and some you could make and didn't have to worry about, and some you better keep if you make that kind. They came up with this really crazy system. For instance, if you made a vow, and it was phrased in this way, by heaven and earth, or by Jerusalem, it was okay to break it. But if, in the course of making the vow, you said the words not by Jerusalem, but towards Jerusalem, well, you better keep that one. I'm not making this up. It's recorded. 
ancient history. We've got the documents to show this. And that's what Jesus is speaking against. Obviously, in doing this, they are wrecking something that was intended to encourage truthfulness, and instead they're actually doing just the opposite and encouraging a system of deceitfulness. The command is clear, and Jesus is pressing to make it all the clear. The intent, again, is to uphold, to establish, to encourage telling the truth and staying true to our word. Now, just a quick aside here before I move forward, and that is, could we be described that way? As people who are committed to telling the truth and being true to our word, do the people who know you well, would they describe you that way? Okay, just put that on pause. I want to come back to that, okay? All right, so that's the command. Jesus speaks to the command. Now we're going to get to the correction because the way this is being interpreted is wrong. Picking up where we left off, verse 34, first word is but. So you see, obviously, he's about to say something else. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Okay, so some clarifications to help us get into some better understanding of this. Some of you may know that through the history of the church, there have been groups that have taken certain positions that would say, you know, if you read this text just straightforward, it's pretty plain, and that is, we are, as followers of Jesus, absolutely prohibited from taking a vow of testimony in a court of law. Some people... Through the years and still today, I think the Quakers, many Quakers actually still hold to, to this position. To which I would just have to gently say, I appreciate how serious you are in taking the text. That's good. But I would beg you to ask yourself this question. Why then does Paul in Acts put himself under oath? Why then does Jesus not refuse to be put under oath by the high priest in the midst of his trial? Why then, by the way, does God swear by himself and enter into covenants. The issue is not oath-taking itself. The issue is the heart in which we do it. The proper position. Jesus, Jesus is, is completely undercutting this whole system that the Pharisees were operating in. He said, don't you understand? I'm paraphrasing here, okay? Don't you understand everything? All of life is before God. You can't swear by one thing and as though he's excluded by that. Everything, all of life, is lived before him. This system of yours is, is so flawed and foolish. Now, rather the way that Jesus is saying it, if you're my followers, here's, here's what this means for you. You should be so reliable in what you say that those who know you won't even think twice about asking an oath from you because they trust you. Now, in a context where people don't know you, in a court system, maybe you're needing to take a vow to enter military service or political service or to testify you know, over, over the Bible in a court, that's fine. That's fine. That's appropriate. And, and, and just completely acceptable. All right, so that's the clarifications. Let me move into some intensification, because Jesus certainly does get pretty intense here. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Let what you say be simply yes 
or no? Well, why do we take oaths? You ever think about that? What, what's the purpose? What, what's, what's the backdrop for that? The, the, the world context, if you put it, this way, put it that way. Well, it's a broken world. A broken, shattered world in which people make and break promises. And we're used to that. We're accustomed to that. We've been burned by that. And, and yet, in the, in the midst of that, um, we have to have some way to count on one another, to work with one another, to live with one another. And so in that comes this need at times to take these vows. And yet in that, at the same time, Jesus is saying, look, if, I'm telling you, if you're following me, you're a new creature. You have been called into a new community. And your speech is to be hmm, driven and shaped in, 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 in a new way. So the focus you see here shifts from oath-taking to truth-telling. Jesus gives the correction. He clarifies this. He intensifies this. Now let me come back to those questions I left hanging out there a little while ago. Um, how are we tempted in this area? You, me, us, the mess of us. <laughs> how are we tempted here? Let me just break it up in two ways. False words and broken words. The, the false words. How we exaggerate. You know, just to kind of cover our tracks. The amount we spent on something. We'll either play it up or play it down, depending on who's listening. The time that we left or arrived. We'll play it up or play it down, depending on who's listening. Exaggerations. Or eliminations. Eliminations of little facts, little details. And the recounting of an event that we were involved in, that somehow in the way we relay it to the other party, that which would leave lend us in a less than good light, we somehow managed to leave out. Exaggerations, eliminations, false words, broken words, broken commitments, broken promises. You know, when it's just too inconvenient, right? Because, you know, things change. They're different now than they were when you made the promise before. Or maybe a better offer has come up. Or maybe um, the parties that you are dealing with, who are in the receiving end, counting on what you said, in your eyes you deem to be insignificant. Or at least not significant enough to do what you said. Or maybe the circumstances in the situation you believe to be invisible. No one's really going to know. No one's really going to find out. And Jesus in the midst of all that, into all that, is, is, is come to fulfill the law, including with our speech. We need to heed, heed that. We need to heed that. All right, lastly, cautions. Cautions. Um, if treated lightly, this sort of thing will surely yield a harvest of some incredibly bitter fruit in our lives. Um, for starters, a seared conscience. Every time you do it, every time you twist that truth or fail to be true to your word, it's a deadening of the conscience. Your heart 
is getting one incremental step harder and more calloused. And it just gets easier to do the next time and make an even larger leap. Be careful. The searing of your conscience. And I would add to that also the fracturing of community. As trust unravels between us, it makes it increasingly difficult to work and live with each other. You see how painful and bitter the yield of this harvest is. You've got to take this seriously. Now all of that said, tracing back, well, looking for, thinking in terms of, of, of where that takes us, where does it come from? When I talk about you know, bitter fruits, let's talk about deep roots. You may notice I didn't read the last part of verse 37. I am now. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Oh. Now you may note also, some of you have probably footnotes in your Bible and, and that may take you to the bottom of the page and there's an alternative translation there. It's hard to know which way to go with this. It could be anything less than this, anything more than, excuse me, comes from evil or it could be translated the evil one. That is to say, the author of lies himself, the accuser, the deceiver, Satan. Now, whichever way that is, whether it's from evil or the evil one, in any case, it is really, it's all about a system that we talked about some time to time here, idolatry. That's really what we're talking about. It's, it's why we fail to speak the truth and fail, to, or fail at times to be true to our word. It's because of idols. Idols that are occupying our hearts. That is to say, to the extent that we are worshiping and serving anything or anyone other than the true and living God. Uh, that we are um, looking to and trusting in anything, anyone but Him for our security and our identity. And I want to list just four. Four deep, deep, deep idols that have ways of, of causing this fruit to come forth. And, and, and these are the, your roots, I guess you could say. One would be affection and approval. I want to be liked. And I'm afraid if you find me out what you're going to think, so I lie. You see? That's an idol that has its effects. Affection and approval. Power and influence. Leaders will make promises that they know full well they cannot keep, but they feel they must drive the agenda forward. That's an idol. The desire to hold to the power and the influence. That's an idol that has its effects. That's the second. Thirdly, security and control. Here's an example. You want, you're, you're desperate to get the job. You're desperate to keep the job. And you will say or do whatever it takes to do that. Whatever harm it may come to anyone else. Well, that's an idol. And it has its effects. Comfort and ease is another one. Another of these idols that, that cause us to come about. The temptation is just too strong. It's too hard. It's pulling on me. And now I, I, it, I break, I give in, and I'm now breaking a promise that I have made to someone. You see, that's an idol. That's an idol. And it bears its bitter 
fruit, with that deep, deep root. These idols have their terrible, terrible, horrible effects. So where's, you know, where are we tempted here? What's the source here? Here's the last question, conclusion. How are we freed? How can we be set free from all this? Because we're talking about being shackled, really. Enslavement, addiction. How can we be free? Here's the key. Understanding that that which comes out of our mouth originates in our heart. That which we say is an overflow of waters deep down. We're talking about the heart. The human heart. And as I said a moment ago, false words and broken promises come forth from idols of our heart. Well, then those idols need to be dislodged. Those idols need to be replaced. How? How? By a clearer, truer, growing view of the truth Himself. That's how. Now, let this sink into your bones. Jesus, because He is not beholden to our approval, <laughs> is willing to say the hard thing that we need to hear of us and to us, of the estrangement between God and man and who is the cause, and the fact that we are helpless to do anything about it in and of ourselves. He's willing to say that, to speak truth. And unwilling to just let that lie, He then promises to come and fix it. Despite how hard it is and painful it would prove to be living and dying in our place. He keeps that promise. As the promise keeper and truth teller, and He is determined to make us like Him. To make us truth tellers and promise keepers in this world and one to another. Do you see? Now as that vision of who He is and what He has done for you continues to capture your heart, it transforms the heart and it can begin to set you free from your deceptive impulses. And those feelings in which you feel like you've got to take things into your own hands and your own control and break the promise. But rather, we're freed now to follow Him, the truth Himself. He came, my friends, He came to fulfill the law. Oh, that we would heed what he has to say, including in this issue of speech. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time, uh, this time here in, at this point in the service of studying and reflecting on your word. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for inspiring them, for speaking them, for preserving them all these years. And we confess we need to hear. We are not so unlike the Pharisees with an impulse to rationalize, rationalize and explain things away to try and make things more attainable for us, to help make ourselves feel better. We are not so different, and we find ourselves often, because of, of all of this, left with broken shards and a husk of what things were supposed to be and how we are supposed to be. And you intend and desire so much more. You've come to bring us life and life to the full. 
And as we trust You, as we turn to You, as we follow You, we find life. Life indeed. May our deepest delight be in You and Your ways. All of them. In Your name we pray. Amen. If I could ask my fellow elders,